One in three kids is overweight or obese. Welcome to Kids Can, Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Hello and welcome back to Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids, a show highlighting everyday issues children face today and featuring conversations on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. On the show today, we're chatting with president of the National Dairy Council, past chair of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Foundation, and founding board member of our organization, Action for Healthy Kids, Jean Regali Carr. Jean is here to share her story and discuss healing from tragedy by using exercise as therapy, the connections between mental health and drug addiction, and so much more. Hi, Jean, and welcome to Kids Can. I've known you for 15 years now, I think, and we've spoken in lots of different contexts, but never in this kind of setting. So glad to have you on the show with us today. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Rob. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like I said, you were one of the first people I met when I joined Action for Healthy Kids. And so it's been a long, interesting ride all of these years. So great to talk to you today. Yeah, I can't believe it's that long, you know, how time flies and what change we've seen in school health. It's been very interesting. Yeah, change we've seen in the world over the last 15 years. Uh, Tremendous. That's for sure. Yeah, so we'll we'll jump into it. So there are many issues that affect the health, safety, and security of kids across the country, from food insecurity and environmental concerns, but something that is not often enough spoken about in terms of its impact on kids and their families, of course, is the ongoing opioid and overdose crisis in our country which has reached across the nation and now accounts for it. It's really unbelievable when you think about it, 100,000 deaths per year, impacting families from every walk of life. Back in 2018, your family experienced a grave tragedy when your eldest son, Bud, passed away from an overdose five days after his 30th birthday. In the wake of your son's passing, you have worked tirelessly and told me about it over the years to try to prevent more families from suffering the way that yours has. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with your son? Yeah, it has been quite the journey. And if I may, I'd like to set the stage about who Bud was a bit, you know, so you know. I've been blessed to have three amazing children. And my oldest son's name was Bud. And he was really a loving, compassionate, and popular child. And he loved things. He really was a huge baseball fan from playing Little League to high school baseball and a huge Chicago White Sox fan. He took great pleasure in all kinds of musics, and he really had a passion for cooking, especially Italian food. And he liked not only to cook it, but also to eat it. He had a loving family. You know, we lived in the suburbs, two working parents, a brother and a sister. And he really was full of vibrant energy and He was also a risk taker. And in high school, he started using alcohol and drugs and really through his 20s and then ultimately to his death when he was 30. So if you know someone with addiction, you know all too well the pain and anguish of watching a loved one in the clutches of this disease. And Bud struggled over those years to get healthy. And during those times when he was healthy, he really wished that others didn't have to suffer with this disease. And he he sought out opportunities to help those in recovery. And so upon Bud's passing, 
you know, it continues to be excruciatingly painful, but perhaps just as tragic is the undeniable reality that it wasn't just addiction that claimed his life, but it was also the shame and the stigma that surrounds that disease. And he felt that every single morning that he woke up with the disease. So this is just an also additional fact of this really wicked disease that happens. But in the aftermath of Bud's death, I really tried to struggle to make sense of what had happened. And I made a promise to him and to my family that I would try to do something to spare others from that tragedy. And so I really started searching out ways to do that and looking for ways to help others. And so, as you said in the beginning, I have done that for the last three years. And kind of through that pain, I have found my own passion to help others and use that misery of that that experience to be a mission to see if I can just even help one other person. But working with you through Action for Healthy Kids also, and, you know, living through this experience of COVID with this isolation that we have seen and its impact on youth with the skyrocketing numbers that we've seen in overdose, as you stated, deaths from overdose over a hundred thousand I don't even know what that increase was over time, but it's significant over the last couple of years, but of suicide and other mental health issues. So I believe that every child deserves not only to be physically healthy, but also mentally healthy. And so this is a way I can give back because prevention is key to solving this problem. The mental health issues facing our kids are just, to your point, off the charts. And there are a lot of great organizations out there working to try to make some changes. But I want to follow up on one thing you just said. You talked a little bit about the stigma and your son's reaction to it as uh, you were going through that. Can you talk about it from your own perspective and, you know, from the perspective of your family, how it impacted you? You know, I think as I think back over the experience as he struggled all through high school, through his 20s and in his 30s, in the beginning, seeking out help was hard to do not personally, you know, to even for me, let alone him, to admit that he had this problem and to try to seek help. So I have seen how that, honestly, stigma and shame can actually kill people. You know, if you're so ashamed that you're not willing to reach out and to find the solutions, if there are any, that can kill just as much. So I would say that I struggled with that. You know, as the years went on, pretty soon you you had to put that to the side because it was a matter of life and death about your child. And so seeking help was not easy. And we know that, you know, kids spend what, you know, the biggest role models for them or places to find help are through the family or through schools. And so that is why it's so important that we work together with communities to make sure that we're talking about it that even in his death, we had to figure out, because of the stigma and shave, if we were going to say what ultimately killed him. And we decided at that time that we would explain, even in the obituary, what happened. And I'll tell you, Rob, that has been a game changer for me as far as living a true life. I can't even imagine if I didn't admit that at that time, how I would have dealt with this tragedy and not being able to speak about it. So once I we admitted it, spoke about it, began to understand it even better, 
we're immediately able to help others. I mean, from honestly, within 30 days of publicly coming out about that issue, was able to help others in the same situation. What was it about being transparent and vocal in that scenario that changed things for you? Wow. I I think it's just being able to say it. There's nothing to hide. And it opens other people up to wanting to talk to you and say, hey, I have an issue too. And they might do it very discreetly. And then you, you know, can help direct them to, you know, identify resources that I did find in my journey that were helpful and to, you know, make recommendations. Yeah. So as you know, and as we've been talking about, the opioid epidemic has touched the lives of so many Americans, young, old, everyone in between. And I'm sure there are many listeners who have found themselves facing challenges similar to the ones that you've been talking about. What would you say to those who may be in a similar situation right now, but are reluctant to speak out or just don't know what to do? I would say that help is available that recovery is possible, but that you need others to go on this journey with you to help you and to allow them to help you. You have to first allow that to happen. And there are today so many more resources available to help you. Organizations like, you know, Action for Healthy Kids, but also like there's an organization, a national organization called Shatterproof. There are mental health professionals available in communities, in hospitals, and even in schools that can help. But if you don't seek them out and reach out, you can't get that help. And so I would say the first thing is to go ahead and look into organizations like Shatterproof, like Action for Healthy Kids, that can identify resources for you. The other huge, huge help for me was my church. And it was hard to even admit in church, you know, to fellow churchgoers about this issue. But once I did, the doors of support that opened up were my lifeline, for sure. And so by finding a group like that, it could be through Al-Anon, you know, through your church. There are different ways to get it. But for me, without a doubt, it was through the faith-based organizations that stepped to my side and really helped walk that journey with me and help me help myself and then enable me to help my son in so many different, very dire situations. In other words, don't do it yourself. Yeah. You know, find someone to take the journey along with you. As part of your journey, you have spoken about how physical activity even was a therapy for you and has continued to be, as I take it anyway. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how you view that? You know, Rob, healthy habits, physically, you know, and mentally, are vital to, you know, dealing with stress and helping our kids become resilient. You know, I'm a dietitian too, and my background is, you know, so healthy habits like eating right and being physically active have been really very important in my life throughout my whole life. And as I look back on it, as I have the last couple of years, I realize that physical activity has been a pillar for me throughout my entire life, especially during 
challenging times in my life to stay healthy myself so I'm as strong as I can be, but also to work through those problems and feel strong enough to take them on. I'll give one example. Even after the death of my son, I decided my brother called me and asked me if I wanted to take a a hike across the Grand Canyon to raise money for a recovery home to develop a a gym in a recovery home. And so together with this family group, we walked 25 miles, you know, kind of tribute to my son and raised over $50,000 to build a gym in a recovery home. And it just goes back to how important physical fitness was to me in staying mentally resilient, but it was also vital to my son through his entire journey. Through his, you know, high school, he was very active, but in his 20s, as he struggled and, you know, he'd had healthy times and unhealthy times, he was a fitness fanatic and he worked out and, you know, just believed so much in physical activity and healthy eating too, to remain as strong and as resilient as he could too. Can you tell us a little bit more about your trip through the Grand Canyon, what it meant to you, what the experience was like, and what you were trying to accomplish? You know, at first it was just about raising money. And we took the hike in May of 2019. And that whole time of training, you know, again, and talking to my brothers and sisters and my my children, as we prepared to take this journey, we talked about Bud a lot, you know, and we talked about why we were doing this. So then as we walked into this awesome, you know, Grand Canyon to go down into the canyon and across, it was a journey, both mentally and physically, because we really thought about my son and the journey that he took. And the point that you made earlier is, you can't do this alone. I couldn't do that journey across and wouldn't have done the journey across the Grand Canyon without my family. And, you know, he couldn't do his journey as his journey through his, you know, disease without others helping him too. So I think it just takes a village for all of us to help each other through these very trying, you know, experiences that we all have in our life. And, as you said, you can't do it alone. You need to reach out and find resources. You need to make sure that you take care of your health, both in nutrition and physical activity and mental health and physical health. All these things were vital. But ultimately, you know, seeing the work of God in that journey, both in forming the canyons as well as allowing us to take this trek across the canyon really brought us closer to feeling closer to Bud and to his experience, you know, and the the challenges that you have, the ups and the downs. And that's exactly what it's all about. Isn't that what life is about? Of course. Oftentimes, people fail to see the connections between a person's mental health and the disease of addiction. Hmm. But you have spoken out about your son's uh, struggles with both What have you learned about this connection over all of these years? And what would you say to those who might have a family member or loved one who's struggling with addiction and mental health issues? I'd say, you know, seek out help. You can't do this alone and you're not alone. There are many, many people, way more than you would ever believe that are struggling with the same exact situation or the disease. It's never the same for anybody 
but you can learn something. And if you can reach out, you know, this could be a game changer for you and your family member. So I think the most important thing is as we struggle, you know, we have to realize that we're not in it alone and that others can help and be there for us. And you can find it in many different ways, you know, whether it's in schools, through other, you know, mental health professionals within your community, with your church. There are more people out there that want to help, that can help, and that recovery is possible. Sometimes in the depth of the disease, you do not feel like it's possible. But we have learned, even in the last three years, so much more about substance use disorder and how to overcome it than we did even three years ago. And so there are many kind of myths about addiction. And, you know, education is key to that, to understand what the newest thinking is. This is a brain disease. And once it gets hold of the brain, it's difficult to overcome. And that's why you need to seek out help from professionals that understand the different treatments that are available to help people overcome the issue. Is that what you meant by so much more has, is now known about this just over the last few years, that it's really a, a disease of the brain? Or are you referring to something else? No, I think oh, two things. It is the science behind the disease and how it works in a body and the brain. And of course, one reaches out for help. Sometimes in, in our youth, especially, you know, they try drugs and alcohol. And so it's, it's easy to do that. But let me get back to the fact that there are new treatments to substance use disorder. There are different ways of handling it, both medically as well as physically. So there's just a lot more data on it and understanding. That's why they now are classifying it as a disease, as a brain disease, not just, uh, you know, a lack of willpower is what some of the, you know, belief is from the past. That's not it. And once you're in the disease, do you not seek out help if you have cancer or diabetes or heart disease? And you go to the medical professionals that understand that disease and understand the treatments. You know, if you have cancer, you can't just talk to anybody about how what that treatment is. You need to go to the experts that understand what that is and that there is more help. There is hope. And there is recovery that's possible. And so you need to find it and you need to seek that out. Mental health and substance use disorders share some of the same underlying causes in my reading of some of the literature coming out recently, including changes, as we've been talking about, in brain composition, genetic vulnerabilities, early exposure to trauma. And according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, more than one in four adults living with serious mental health problems also has a substance use challenge. You know, Rob, also that many people with mental health issues then, you know, in their own self-medicating, use drugs and alcohol to address that mental health issue. So it's both a disease in itself as well as this, you know, solution for some that are struggling with other mental health disorders. So it's you know, interwoven in all of that. And when you think about, you know, so many youth are facing a mental health crisis in this country today, and I think, you know, the the number is 15 million kids have been diagnosed with 
a mental, emotional, or behavioral health diagnosis. And these kids are in our schools and in our communities and in our homes. And so we need to not only take care of their physical health, we need to take care of their mental health too. 15 million kids is a staggering number, just staggering. Can you talk a little bit, both as a parent with your experience and through your professional life, having worked in schools and with schools and children, can you talk about your thoughts on the steps we should be taking in schools and communities to provide help, resources, education, to address especially the underlying causes of mental health and the substance use issues we've been talking about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, that we all could agree now. I think it's become so because of, you know, the last couple of years with COVID and social unrest and everything that we need to care for our kids' health mentally and physically. And so in order, there's a lot of literature out there now, as you know, around mental health and what to do. But one of the first things, and I couldn't agree more, is that prevention is key. If the earlier we can head that off, the better. And so what does that mean? That means, you know, instilling healthy habits in our homes and in our schools. But when I think about it as a parent, we need to start early in our child's life to help them understand how to handle emotional or challenging times in order to work through it to become resilient for the other times in their life that that's going to happen. You know, we need to understand the facts that you're talking about today about that addiction and substance use disorder is a brain disease and it impacts the whole family and there becomes a very dangerous dynamic when that begins to happen and there are ways and help to handle that, that, you know, we need to be a good role model at home and at school. And we need to role model, you know, good habits. And when they talk about that, I I mean, as I dig into that, I think that's so fascinating. What does that mean? And, you know, what they talk about in order to build resilience, we need to have connected relationships with adults, with our peers, with other professionals out there. And we need to help our kids understand how to build those and get connected in school, at home, in the community. It means we as parents need to spend time with our kids and understand what's going on in their head, online, you know, on their devices, and in school. And for me, I mean, when you get down to it, it's very important in being a good role model, that we have good nutrition available and lots of ways to get physical activity. You know, we need to make fun, playtime a part of our lives, not, you know, always online, but other ways to get physically active, get connected, have friends, you know, are connected with the adults in our life. But in having good nutrition available, because that helps the brain function better, too. So both that physical activity and nutrition are foundational to me, and I think in the data shows, to having a healthy and resilient kid and child and family, but also then to get connected at so many different levels. And I think, you know, staying connected through your church for many is a great way to get additional support and resources that you might not find anywhere else. And also to make sure that your communities and your schools 
are investing in mental health, you know, and helping be a voice for that in order to make sure that our kids are getting what they need. You know, I mean, children are a hundred percent of our future. You know, we need to do right by them and keep them healthy, both mentally and physically. Everything you just said is, as you mentioned, backed up by the literature. The Harvard Center for the Developing Child has a concept called the Three Foundations of Lifelong Health, which of course is proper nutrition, a space where you can be healthy and physically active, and then key to what we're talking about, what you were just talking about, which I'd like to dig into a little bit, is having at least one nurturing relationship with an adult. Every single child needs one. We'd all love for that relationship to be with their parent or both of their parents, right? But sadly, that's not in the cards for some kids. And you just mentioned a couple of different places where kids can get that nurturing relationship if they don't have it at home, schools, in their church, and in other places. When you think about relationship between kids and, and at least one nurturing adult, anything jumping out at you that you think that we as a society, we should be really thinking about for our communities? Well, you know, I think when you think about connectiveness, in my, you know, investigation of what does all that mean, it's really valuing the importance of making sure our children are connected. And that connectedness can come from so many different places, like you're saying, but it made me value even more those relationships that our children do develop with teachers, with coaches, with, you know, when I think about the importance for Bud of his coaches in baseball, in the church, or the role that we as a single individual can have with a child, that we could be the difference maker for a child, and how important that is and to really value and recognize that it can be anyone you know, that with uh, the right attitude and these healthy habits that could be the instigator of that relationship that changes a life. Yeah, on a different issue, many people may not realize the sad fact that the drug fentanyl is involved in more American youth drug deaths than most other drugs combined. Can you talk a little bit from a, again, from your parent? A parental perspective and from your professional perspective about the dangers posed by drugs that have flooded the market in the United States and how parents or what parents can do to educate themselves about the signs of use of these kinds of drugs? Yeah, I mean, it's such a dangerous drug. It just kills one time, you know, you don't get a second chance very often. It's Fentanyl is a controlled substance, you know, that's supposed to be used by professionals. And that's why it's called a controlled substance. And in the hands of the wrong people that are selling drugs on the street, you know, what kind of controls are there to assure the right dosage? So it could be in one pill could be deadly. So I think it goes back to prevention and communication, we have to talk to our kids about this issue. We have to talk, and there's, again, a lot of data out there from, the, and you can share some of those, Rob, from SAMHSA. I'm looking at the U.S. Surgeon General's advisory report in 2021 about this, et cetera, but that, you know, if we, we need to open up the conversation between, as parents with our children, in our schools, and in our communities, how deadly 
this disease is so that our children don't get their hands on it. We have to make sure that the prescription meds in our homes are, you know, under lock and key or are not available for experimentation by, you know, by children or others. So this fentanyl is just, it is a matter of a life and death. It's a one-time situation. So to me, the most important thing is we, you know, we can't run around locking all the cabinets, right? So we better start talking about, you know, the dangers of drug use, the earlier, the better, so they know what is at stake. In a lot of ways, it seems like we need places like schools or school stakeholders and health professionals to be better coordinated and connected. Life doesn't end when a child leaves the school building. It continues on, and, and there are all kinds of other experiences they have when they leave the school building every day, too, or during the summertime, which is especially challenging and a vulnerable time for a lot of kids around the country. You know, Rob, do you remember when we started Action for Healthy Kids, we had a vision that when a child walked through the schoolhouse door, they would have more opportunities for the good nutrition they needed and more opportunity for physical fitness. That's still true today, but also I think what we've learned that we, every child deserves, you know, to be healthy both mentally and physically, and we need to give them better opportunities in schools and at home for that to happen. And that means better relationships and better support so they can learn better. And so I just think as we go forward, we have to, it's just more important than ever that we take that into consideration. Yeah. What would you say to parents and other caring community members if they were looking to make a difference and what could they do? You know, we've talked a little bit about policy, and I'm sure there's a lot of work that could be done there. What can your your average person do to make a difference? What would you recommend if someone hears this, says, oh my gosh, I want to make a difference. I want to positively impact my community. What would you recommend? I think they first have to ask what is available in the community. So schools, for instance, what are they doing to address mental health and specifically substance abuse? And we have to demand that it happens because it's about our children and it's about their future. And so in the communities too, I think making sure that we're investing in community programs that help increase awareness and provide support to families in need and that they make that available and make people aware of those programs. That's half the battle is just trying to find programs that can help those who are struggling at the time they find out about the situation. Yeah, it's been wonderful to talk to you uh, to this point. I'd like to close with one, I'll call it an aspirational question. You've dedicated a lot of your career and your personal time to issues around various aspects of health for kids especially. What is your greatest wish for today's children and youth? My greatest wish for children today is really that all children have an opportunity to be healthy in both body and mind with better relationships, better habits, and better learning. And I think if we can do that, if we can revolutionize what we're doing here in providing that mental health support and quickly, because a lot of kids and children are dying because we don't have it, and that if we need to help end the stigma around addiction so that families can get the help they need, and we need to educate those and open up the conversation to help 
families and individuals in need. I can't tell you how much I appreciate everything you've done for Action for Healthy Kids over all of the years and for your openness to have this conversation. It's such an important conversation that I think a lot of people will really like to hear and can benefit from. So thank you so much, Jean. It has just been a pleasure to talk to you as always. Thanks, Rob. I hope I can make a difference for just one one person out there. Thanks for taking the time to address this really important issue. I want to say thank you to Jean for taking time to join us today and share her thoughts about the experiences around these important but difficult topics, as well as some of the things we can do to improve the health and well-being of children in schools. Remember, you can always find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and leave a review so more people can find us or check out some of our past episodes. I'm Rob Bisegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids. Kids.